Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training, and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health, and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence, and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. Today's guest is Dr. Tommy Wood, and he's going to break down and decipher everything insulin resistance, which will be of interest to a lot of people because I think a lot of us have a misunderstanding of what insulin resistance truly is, or at least the way it's been taught in most nutrition and medical schools and settings. But a little bit about Tommy. Tommy Wood is a medical doctor and a PhD. He's a research faculty member at the University of Washington in the Department of Pediatrics. His research focuses on ways to increase resilience and to treat the injury of the developing brain. He has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge. He received his medical degree from the University of Oxford and has a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. In addition to his role as faculty at UW, he serves as president of Physicians for Ancestral Health. He has published and spoken on multiple topics surrounding functional and ancestral approaches to health, including the root causes of chronic disease such as multiple sclerosis and insulin resistance. So I think you'll find today's episode very interesting. Again, it's one of those episodes that's quite dense. You might want to keep hitting replay to kind of get the nuanced points from his wealth of knowledge on this topic. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Tom. Can I call you Tom? Uh, most people call me Tommy, but my dad and my sister call me Tom. So okay. feel free, whatever feels easiest. Yeah, Tommy, Tommy sounds fun, so why not? So <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast because I had seen a couple of your interviews before, some dating back to five years ago. Mm. And you were talking about a very topical issue, and that's insulin resistance, but you're talking about it in a way that the current dogma does not talk about it in that same way, if I'm making sense. So as a dietitian working in a hospital, as a nutritionist counseling patients, as a former certified diabetes educator, I don't know if you've heard of that designation, it's for sure in the US and Canada. Mm -hmm. I just know we have a not quite as clear this whole concept of insulin resistance. So I wanted to have you on. So before we jump in, I'm just wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and more importantly, how you became interested in the world of health, insulin resistance, fitness, and metabolic health. Yeah, sure. So my current job, I'm a full-time academic at the University of Washington. I'm a research faculty in the division of neonatology, actually. So the majority of my academic research is focused on ways to treat the injured newborn brain, babies born either prematurely or sometime they reach full term, something happens around birth, and then there's a brain injury because of that. And that's where I spend the majority of my time. However, I've had a bit of a storied life up to that point. So I have a background in biochemistry. That was my undergraduate degree. Then I went to medical school. I worked for a couple of years as a doctor in central London before I did my PhD. And during that time, so largely during my own education and training, 
I became increasingly interested in just what's associated with both health and performance. So I was a, a sedentary and cookie or biscuit eating child and found health and fitness in my late teens. And then I rode at university and then spent more time coaching athletes myself and have now you know, coached multiple athletes in multiple sports and, and spent a period of time working for a company called Nourish Balance Thrive that works with various athletes trying to optimize their, their health and, and long-term health and performance. So those are kind of my two parallel tracks. And as I spend more and more time doing both of the above, my real interest is in trying to construct a framework that would allow us to understand what is responsible or what would allow for a resilient and healthy body and brain for our entire lifespan, essentially, you know, from preconception and birth through any athletic or daily performance, you know, the act of having a, a healthy body and healthy physiology is essentially what's going to then allow you to go and continue a long and healthy lifespan as long as possible. So all of those things kind of intersect. And metabolic health is essentially one of the if not the most important thing that's going to determine how well you live and age. And so that's where I spend a lot of my time you know, outside of my formal bench research in the lab is looking at insulin resistance, talking to people about how it occurs, how we might treat it, what sort of the underlying physiology is. Because like you say, I think there's some misconceptions in terms of how insulin functions and how the whole system functions and how it starts to fall apart in the setting of insulin resistance. So that's been a big interest of mine for the last you know, 10 years or so. And it's to me, it's the crux of the matter because I went back to school to study nutrition and we study things that, you know, you'd look at some biochemistry sort of, certainly not at the level that nutritional scientists do. And I think in the communication of metabolic health or wanting to avoid insulin resistance or diabetes, it's been my experience 22 years as a dietitian that either the public understands it in this way because that's how they understand it or it's communicated this way but it's just when we talk about metabolism and metabolic health and insulin resistance people just think it's about calories and mm. weight and to me i think we need to kind of spin it to really because people can understand things even if they don't have a background in science if it's communicated yeah. properly so if people really understood what was happening at the level of the cell specifically how it's using energy the consequences of that i think we might have a better impact on moving people along because metabolic health is everything as you know because you just mm -hmm. mentioned it you mediate it for health throughout the lifespan there's some degree of insulin resistance as we get older so everyone can at risk for type 2 diabetes we now know it's tied into cognitive decline mm. right some degree of insulin resistance in the brain so i really think that we're missing the mark in that regard so that's why you're here to help clear up the confusion so i think it's important for people to kind of conceptually grasp this concept of insulin resistance so maybe i'll start with my understanding of it how I was taught, how it's still being taught to patients, and how it's still being communicated, I think, by and large, and then you'll clear up the confusion. All right. Sounds great. Yeah. So the current basic model is type 2 diabetes is a situation where you have insulin resistance. And so it's submitted or basically put that insulin is a hormone that acts like a bouncer at a club or the doorman, the door person. So he or she is letting in people, we'll call that glucose, into the club, which is the cell. And 
eventually the door is not being opened to allow those people into the clubs. In this case, the analogy would be blood sugar from carbohydrate that we eat is not entering the cell to be used, so it builds up. And that this is really an issue of insulin no longer doing its job which is a bit simplistic. And then what leads to that is a couple of things. So we talk about being sedentary or not being active, but we also talk about this kind of chronic consumption of dietary carbohydrate, both in terms of the total amount, right? So glycemic load and maybe carbohydrate quality. So things that cause a lot of insulin release, like sugars, is bombarding the cell and it gets tired. So it's like putting its fingers in its ears because it doesn't want to hear the noise anymore and so it stops responding to me that makes it sound like the issue is that there's no glucose in the cell it's all in the blood and it's all Mm. because insulin has just dropped the ball in terms of its role and then we shove the glucose into this the cell by giving people insulin Mm -hmm. so that's how much of that is true 50 percent, 30 almost none of it almost none Uh. of it (laughs) (laughs) so what is true is that in the setting of insulin resistance, the cell has put its fingers in its ears. It said, I have enough energy or I have too much energy. And that is signaled by multiple things, both the amount of energy itself and then oxidative stress and inflammation, which are all sort of coalesce, particularly around the function of the mitochondria. And because of that, that signals back to the insulin receptor that says, we can't take any more. Please stop this signaling process. And so that is true. However, I think everything else is essentially backwards. And to kind of untangle that, we need to start with what the job of insulin is. And most people think that insulin's like main job is to upregulate glucose transporters like GLUT4 that goes to the cell membrane that allows glucose in. And a small amount of basal insulin signaling is required for that. But in reality, in most people, that's already happened. Then insulin fluctuations after that don't really affect glucose uptake. So the main job of insulin is to regulate the amount of circulating energy in your system as a whole. And so glucose is one part of that. But what insulin is more concerned with is making sure that there is or isn't breakdown of tissues to convert into glucose in the time of there not being any coming from the diet. So insulin's main action is what I call anti-catabolic. So when it's circulating, it's stopping the breakdown of muscle tissue, which we call proteolysis, and it's stopping the breakdown of fat tissue, which we call lipolysis. So if you think about energy in the system, it's like a bathtub, right? And if you have your stores of energy, and some of it is protein in your muscles, and but most of it is fat in your fat cells. So if you think about the fat in your fat cells, there's uptake continuously. And insulin doesn't regulate that. So a lot of people say that, you know, spikes of insulin make you get fat or increases uptake into the fat stores. And and also that's not true. The baseline, the uptake of fats into, into the fat cells is basically always the same. So your bathtub, the tap is always on and insulin regulates whether the plug is in or not. And then that changes whether things accumulate or are released, but it's at the other end. And so when insulin is low, protein is being broken down in muscle fat is being broken down for the adipose tissue. It's going to the liver and it's being converted into glucose via gluconeogenesis. Well, the glycerol from the the fat, the sort of the backbone, and then the the protein. When you have a meal and some insulin is released, I like to think about its jobs in terms of like where it goes 
first. So the first thing that does is to release in the pancreas, it acts on the alpha cells of the pancreas to stop the release of glucagon, which is its main sort of counterbalancing hormone. Then the levels of insulin and glucagon together act on the liver. So decrease in glucagon, increase in insulin to stop the production of glucose. And so what most people don't appreciate is that in type 2 diabetes, in insulin resistance, most of the glucose circulating in your blood is glucose that has been made by the liver inappropriately. It's not glucose that came from the diet. And so that first acts on the liver, reduces gluconeogenesis, and then it goes out into the circulation. And the first thing it does is it stops proteolysis and it stops lipolysis. So it stops the breakdown of tissue as this kind of availability of energy, which is what it's most concerned with. And then as you increase insulin even more, you can start to see an increase of flux through glycolysis in the cells. But it's not until you get to actually what I would call supraphysiological levels of insulin that you start to see an increase of uptake into cells. And this has been very nicely documented. You can sort of, if we think about our fasting insulin, maybe it's about four. And at that level, nothing is happening to glucose. Then if it goes up to 40, which is a fairly normal and a healthy person, a, a normal postprandial insulin, then that will shut down gluconeogenesis in the liver, but it won't increase uptake into cells. All of that is regulated by the cell itself. And then if you go another order of magnitude higher, 400, which is very, very high, most people wouldn't reach that, then you might start to see increased uptake into cells. So all of insulin's control of blood sugar in the normal person is regulating production in the liver and by stopping or allowing glucose production in, in the liver. So that kind of completely flips on its head what people think insulin is doing. And I think the reason why we think about insulin in that way is because of the way that we discovered it. So obviously it was discovered because of type 1 diabetes, mm -hmm. where when we give insulin to type 1 diabetics, we give it peripherally, we give it well outside of the pancreas and the liver where insulin has most of its roles. And yes, the, the first amount, small amount of insulin does increase the uptake of glucose into cells. So we've kind of completely, because of that, created this glucose-centric model of insulin, which isn't really true in most people. So then when we think about insulin resistance, most people who have insulin resistance already have an increased uptake of glucose into cells. There's so much glucose circulating, we're making more than we need in the liver, and it's flooding into the cells. And there are some very nice studies that show that glucose uptake into cells at baseline in insulin-resistant people is higher than in people who, have, who are insulin-sensitive, which doesn't make any sense if you think that insulin-resistance is the like no glucose going into cells and then accumulating in the blood. It's actually the opposite. There's already so much. And again, the reason why it becomes confusing is that the way we test insulin sensitivity the gold standard is something called a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp, where basically you put catheters into people's veins and you shove them full of insulin and glucose and you see how much extra glucose can the body take up if we give huge amounts of insulin. And the answer is you can take up less extra glucose if you're insulin resistant because you're already having to take up so much more because there's more circulating. So again, because of this glucose-centric model of insulin action, this glucose uptake, we again conflate what's really happening at the level of the cell. And so like the gold standard test for insulin resistance sort of 
contributes to that to that confusion. So it's right, if you shove somebody full of glucose and insulin, their cells will take up less, but that's because they're already overworked rather than because there's no glucose going into cells and the signal isn't working. Have I managed to untangle all of that? Yes, it's a lot to unpack as the saying goes. So I'm just going to see if I can, we can just kind of break it down a bit. Yeah. So a couple of things you said that I either knew and I forgot or I had no freaking clue, which is mm -hmm. kind of embarrassing. So basically, like just to clarify one thing about the cell, the cell will take in glucose on its own through a couple of glucose transporters, the GLUT4 and I think there's GLUT1 if my memory serves. Well, there's one, two, three, and four. Uh, and all four on, of them um, do a five. Yeah, it depends on depends on the tissue. Some of them are insulin dependent. Some of them aren't. Okay, so we have these little transporters whose job it is to pull glucose into the cell because there's always glucose in our circulation, either because we liver's making some. Yes, we eat some from food, and even between meals, we're producing some, right? Because we're mm -hmm. converting it from fat and protein then it's doing that independent of insulin. And insulin still has a role to pull glucose in under certain conditions. It does have that role, correct? Yeah, and, and so you need a small amount of baseline signaling to mm -hmm. cause like the, just for the receptors to be there, the transporters to be there. But anybody who doesn't have type 1 diabetes has already reached that level. So that's no longer what we're talking about. Okay. Then in order for it, for insulin to further increase uptake of glucose into cells, you need super physiological levels. You basically need to give it exogenously. It's not the amount of insulin that you would normally get after a meal. Okay. And then in between meals and overnight when we are fasting and we wake up, insulin is really low. Yes. And so the normal response is to give a little bit of glucose to the body, into the blood to fuel red blood cells and if needed, the brain. And the brain. So yeah. it gets that from it, some protein and some glycerol, as you said. Mm -hmm. And then if I wake up and I eat a banana with my oatmeal and an omelet, there's going to be a slight increase in insulin. That's normal. Mm -hmm. And its job is to first tell the pancreas to stop producing glucagon, whose job it is to convert glucose from fat and protein. And its other job is to shut down that process. Then what else is it doing? That's its main thing. So the, the, the carbohydrate from the meal goes into the blood yes. and then it goes to the various tissues and the GLUT4s will pick it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And that's the normal kind of... That's the normal kind of thing. So, so once insulin gets out into the body in that normal state, the main thing it's doing is just stopping the breakdown of muscle tissue and fat tissue because it's not needed, right? Those things overnight, like you said, will release small amounts so you can make, you can make glucose. Um, but the normal job is just to stop the breakdown of those tissues. Okay. It's not to increase glucose uptake into cells. And, and to tell the cell, like, keep making transporters because we're probably going to need them, right? From yeah, day but to day. That, you're probably there anyway. all the time. Okay. Yeah. So the one thing that I didn't adequately explain probably was that in the setting of insulin resistance, it's usually happening in the, in the fat tissue. That's where insulin resistance really starts. Although it can happen in the muscle tissue as well if you're like completely sedentary if you're sort of bed bound or you have a very significant systemic inflammation mm -hmm. but so what happens is that the fat becomes insulin resistant so then insulin can't do its normal job which is to stop the breakdown of that fat tissue so then you get this large 
influx, continuous influx of fat that's being broken down, uh-huh. or, or we call it high turnover. There's a high turnover in the fat tissue because the fat cells won't trap it in because it's not listening to the, to the insulin signal. That goes to the liver. And then when all that stuff shows up and all that glycerol shows up, the only thing the liver can do is turn it into glucose. So in the insulin resistant setting, it's this large influx of glycerol and also proteins. So type 2 diabetes is generally a catabolic state. You start to lose muscle mass over time because, again, that signal from insulin isn't stopping you breaking down that that muscle tissue. And then all those sort of gluconeogenic precursors, we'd call them, turn up in the liver. All the liver can do is turn it into glucose. So like I said, in that setting, most of the circulating glucose that's sort of the extra circulating glucose in people who are insulin resistant has been made by the liver rather than coming from the diet. That's a very confusing part for people, which I'll come back to somewhere along the line. So it's confu- maybe I'll just speak to it. It's confusing for people because people will wake up with a high fasting blood sugar if they're pre-diabetic or diabetic. And it's like, well, yeah. you know, referral to a dietitian because, you know, talk to them about their diet. I'm like, it has nothing to do with their diet. And then even between meals, they can have lots of uh, sugar hanging around because it's mm-hmm. just being produced by the liver. Yeah. So what is with the fat cells? Mm-hmm. sugar is going in there and being converted to triglycerides, which is a form of fat, right? Some sugar yeah, is going that, in. And some that f- does happen a bit. But then also, I mean, that that is, again, regulated by the liver. De novo lipogenesis, a lot of that happens in the liver as well, yeah. So most of the fat accumulation is just the accumulation of free fatty acids that are getting assembled into triglycerides? So, I mean, in general the vast majority of the fat in your fat cells is fat that you ate rather than fat that you made. In reality, it requires a huge amount of dietary carbohydrate to cause de novo lipogenesis. And by the time your fat cells are insulin resistant, that system is already essentially broken down. You will make some fat from carbohydrate, but it's a very small contributor to the total amount of fat that you have in your body. Okay. So the question I guess I'm wondering and what others might be wondering is if insulin resistance is not the result of overeating sugar and carbs and overwhelming the cell and the cell defending itself, Mm -hmm. what are some of the initial steps to causing insulin resistance for cells? Yeah. And that's the most important question. So... In people who who follow the carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis of insulin resistance and obesity, they cite a lot of pharmacological data that says that if you give drugs like insulin itself or other drugs that increase either insulin release or insulin signaling, Mm -hmm. that insulin can contribute to insulin resistance. Because what they're saying is, like anything in physiology, if you have a lot of something, you try and turn down the signal. There's like basic feedback loop that you get Regardless, it's the same if you take if you take anabolic steroids, your body says, I have enough testosterone, so I turn off the signal to make testosterone. It's, it's, it's essentially the same. However, again, that isn't really relevant to the person who isn't sort of augmenting these pathways with pharmaceuticals. So the overeating of carbohydrate itself, so just carbohydrate, right? Say, say you ate a zero fat diet or maybe one or 2% fat. There's a number of studies that essentially show 
the vast majority of what happens or the increased energy, if you overeat just carbohydrate, is just burned off. You increase your metabolism to burn it off. And that doesn't happen if you, if you overeat fat. And so it takes a huge amount of extra carbohydrate to turn on de novo lipogenesis to, to cause the accumulation of fat. And so if we're talking about obesity or being overweight and insulin resistance because they're intimately connected, the reason why overeating sugar could you know can contribute to this process is just because it usually comes with a large amount of fat that then gets stored and then your fat cells become overfull and it's them becoming overfull that makes them insulin resistant so it's not the sugar itself it's usually the quality of the diet and total caloric intake does really matter because like i said insulin resistance starts usually in the fat cells and it's usually because they've reached what we call colloquially the personal fat threshold. So the sum amount of fat that you can store on your body before your fat stores say, I've had enough. And then they start to become insulin resistant because they don't want to take any more. So when you're eating a calorically dense diet, that's more likely to happen. And sugar absolutely contributes to that. But it's not, if you ate just sugar, you would not become insulin resistant really. And those studies have essentially been done eating just pure carbohydrate diets. There are some physicians, you know, you might've heard of uh, Walter Kempner's rice diet. People just ate starch and sugar and they lost weight and their insulin resistance improved. So that simple story doesn't really encompass the entirety of what's going on. So the driver, I was confused then because the dry, primary driver is adipose tissue or fat cells. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not muscle cells. So like I said, it can be. It, it can um, be. But in most people, it seems to be the fat cells. So we have in terms of glucose, the final, it's the fat cells. And I guess it's because I thought it was both maybe the muscle and the fat cells, mm-hmm. but we're really talking at the fat cells. That's where we think it starts in most people. Yeah. And so... What happens to the fat cells? Because people need to understand that fat is not just a bank account. These are metabolically active cells. We used to just yeah. think it was a storage tank. I mean, that's, I'm, that's, I've been at this long enough. It was just a storage tank. So they've got their own metabolism. They've got their own busy stuff going on. So what makes them unhappy that then drives it? Yeah. As you mentioned, inflammation, oxidation. What are those, the common contributors? Essentially, those three things are the things that I think intersect to result in insulin resistance, say, in a fat cell. So there's a baseline, probably genetic component. So we know that people from, say, different countries or different ethnic backgrounds can accumulate different amounts of adipose tissue before they become insulin resistant. So white people, in general, can gain the most fat before they become insulin resistant, whereas we know that people in various South Asian populations Mm -hmm. become insulin resistant at much lower BMIs. So there's some genetic component there. Then, like you mentioned, as fat accumulates, the tissue becomes stressed and we get an influx of things called macrophages, which are white blood cells that essentially increase the inflammation within the tissue. And that's part of stopping any further uptake or increasing insulin resistance to to stop further expansion of the tissue. So if there's something else going on, that causes inflammation. So we know that people who have uh, rheumatological conditions, so rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, they become insulin resistant at much lower body weights or, or 
body fat. So if you have some chronic or systemic inflammatory condition, then that again reduces your personal fat threshold. Oxidative stress is the same. And of course, all of these things intersect. They're not like mm -hmm. just occur on their own. But as the best example I have of oxidative stress, what people may not know is that the first time that insulin resistance was used in the literature was in a case study of hemochromatosis, which people may or may not know is essentially it's a, it's a genetic dysregulation of iron uptake. And these people, you know, in people who have very bad hemochromatosis, they have essentially iron just gets deposited throughout the body. It causes significant oxidative stress and eventually causes organ failure. And in this one case study, they got to the point where this person had to be given thousands of units of insulin a day to maintain their blood sugar, which, you know, if you're a diabetic of, of any kind and you, and you use insulin, there's like orders of magnitude more than what mm -hmm. most people would need to use. So, so any kind of significant oxidative stress, and again, that's an extreme case, but it kind of tells you how the system works, results in, in insulin resistance. So any of those three things, you have some kind of baseline ability to store fat, and then all of those things inflammation oxidative stress can then manipulate that okay so this is slow and insidious because you see this happening so what is the main culprit are we thinking is it just a combination i know this sounds really simple but is it a combination of not moving as ancestrally we have always moved and is it really that kind of slow consequence of caloric density given the quality of our diets yes so yes. it's it, I, <laughs> so i do believe it's both so at some point in order to have expanded adipose tissue stores that are insulin resistant you're going to have to have overeaten calories mm -hmm. that is just part of it and of course the density of your calories so the the caloric density of the food alters your satiety the quality of the food alters your hormonal responses to it. It changes how much you end up eating. So that's where food quality plays a big role, is the fact that more highly processed foods are less likely to give you satiety for a certain number of calories, and they're less likely to allow you to normally regulate your appetite. So you end up eating more. And then plus the various tricks that food scientists can, can use to, to also cause you to overeat. And then the other side of that, the other side of your question was that we're not moving as much as our bodies would expect. And movement in itself is an anti-inflammatory process. So anytime you move your muscles, they release something called myokines, which then actually, if it's very intense exercise, you'll see a peak or a spike in inflammatory signaling, which then causes an overall decrease in systemic inflammation long-term. So the very action of regular movement is anti-inflammatory. And we talked about how inflammation contributes to how much fat we can store before we become insulin resistant. So the answer to your question is yes, like both of those things, I, I think, play important roles on a population level in terms of what's causing insulin resistance. Yeah. And I don't want to make it oversimplified, like eat less, move more. Although there's some, I guess, essence in that that's yeah. true. Mm -hmm. And so what's the interaction between the fat cells that get bloated with all those white blood cells that are making the fat unhappy, how does that relate to moving besides inflammation? Like what's the connection with muscle, yeah. uh, muscle metabolism? 
because I thought a lot of the insulin resistance was driven by muscle cells as well, but I've now learned it's mostly fat cells. Well, so, so, so I do think it's important. I don't want to like just discount the muscle cell doesn't become insulin resistant because we know that it does. Like I said, it, to go to an extreme example to make the point, if the muscle tissue is not becoming insulin resistant, then in the setting of fat tissue insulin resistance, where insulin, circulating insulin is going up, you would accumulate a lot of lean mass because, you have, because your muscle cells are staying insulin sensitive and then that's stopping them breaking down and then you're more likely to accumulate lean mass over time but we know that that's not happening we're actually losing lean mass because the the muscle tissue is becoming insulin resistant but in again in most people the process starts in the fat tissue and then it sort of goes out from there i mean there are maybe two main contributors of of muscle mass to that process one is that the muscle is an incredible glucose sink Mm-hmm. So 75% of your circulating glucose goes into your muscle tissue and 75% of that at least is non-insulin dependent. And then that increases with frequent movement. So just the process of moving also increases, contracting the muscle tissue increases the number of glucose transporters that you have available. And then also if you're moving, then you're creating a, a sink condition. You're creating a sort of a process by which that glucose is being used, essentially. So muscle tissue is an incredible metabolic buffer. And then the other side is, like I mentioned, that the action of moving the muscle again releases what eventually becomes anti-inflammatory or chronically anti-inflammatory molecules that then could improve the quality of the fat tissue, which allows it to remain insulin sensitive. So the, the best example that I have of that is sumo wrestlers who have huge amounts of lean muscle underneath huge amounts of fat. And those guys are very insulin sensitive. So they're not perfect metabolically. So you can look at the blood tests of of sumo wrestlers and they're maybe not what I would call ideal. But if you compare them to obese people who have the same amount of fat tissue, they are in much better health metabolically. And that is the action of their very intensive exercise regimens, again, both as a glucose sink and then having that anti-inflammatory action. Well, and that kind of keeps coming back. There's been this debate, and I don't know why it's a debate, but I think it's in the name of not wanting to body shame people because you can be overweight and metabolically fit. You can be underweight and metabolically unhealthy to be called those, mm-hmm. what is it? To- tofu? Fat? Uh, yeah, uh, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, tofu. Yeah. Like I think it's 25% of people who look like me actually are metabolically unwell because all the stuff we're talking about. So it is arguably better if someone is carrying excess weight and it's obviously better to be fit to some degree Mm. Like it's this idea, can you be fit and fat, right? So it's obviously, it sounds like it keeps coming back to this idea is it's always better to be active uh, regardless of the size because of all these things that you're talking about. Yeah, the most, again, to go to the other extreme to to make your point, there is a, a condition called lipodystrophy where people are unable to store body fat. They basically, they don't have those, those fat stores. They don't have those cells. Those people are incredibly lean, and they are incredibly insulin resistant. They have none of that metabolic buffer for which, you know, if, you, if you're going to put excess energy into the system, you want to be able to store it as fat. It's much healthier to do that than to have all that energy circulating around, right? Which, which we then know is going to be associated with heart disease and all these other things that, mm-hmm. that come down the line. And you make a really important point, and there's been a big movement 
the health at every size movement that basically, you know, not wanting to shame people for a given size. And I, I completely agree with that. I have no reason to have anything to say about your particular body composition or your body size just based on on how you look. And, and I think that that's fair. And many of the reasons underlying why people may become overweight or obese are essentially societal. There's a number of factors mm-hmm. that, that feed into that. And, and we should always remain cognizant of that. However, you have hard data that you can use to arbitrate this. So some people have looked at the metabolically healthy obese phenotype, and it's probably about 7% of people who are obese, roughly. Less than you know, 5 to 10% of people who are, you know, you can take their blood tests and you can see they're in great metabolic health as well as being overweight or obese. So I think that even though it's important, the idea... You can arbitrate this with hard data. You can find out if somebody is metabolically healthy or not by looking inside rather than just sort of blanket saying, you know, we, we shouldn't be talking to people about the risks of being obese because in the majority of people, it is associated with, with right. wor- worse health outcomes. And that's not a blame state. It's just right. true. I get it for sure. So the other thing that I'm curious about that I've heard people talk about, and I mean, I think you've addressed it, but I'm just wondering if we can use this terminology is way, way back when this is like 10 years ago, I've, I heard people talking about this concept of glucose toxicity. So you've mm-hmm. really basically addressed this. There's just too much energy in the cells, which is causing these problems. But it's not just glucose that's in the cell. Does that term muddy the waters? Does it help? Or is it there's a better way to frame it? Yeah, if you're talking about the cell itself, I talk about energy toxicity because it's sort of the total sum of the potential energy substrates that could be free fatty acids or fatty acids that could be glucose. It's possible that if you took, and there is some data to suggest this, that if you if you took somebody with high glucose levels and they have high circulating free fatty acids because they're insulin resistant and then you shove just like a boatload of ketones on top of that that's not necessarily going to be a good state because again you've just added energy to the system when when not enough is being taken out but glucotoxicity from a, a circulating standpoint is potentially useful because that glucose is damaging to an extent you don't want high circulating glucose because it affects the glycocalyx that lines your endothelium affects endothelial function. It can start to glycate numbers of different proteins that may affect how well your the receptors on your cells function. And you know maybe they don't listen to the signal of other hormones because they've become glycated. And we, we know the same thing happens to red blood cells when we do our hemoglobin A1C or other circulating proteins if you look at something like fructosamine on a blood test. So that glucose can sort of get attached to stuff and affect normal physiology. So that is one of the main reasons why we want to control blood sugar, you know, even in people who, who have to take exogenous insulin, so say type 1 diabetics particularly, is because glucose in itself in, in high circulating doses continuously is toxic. So that is, that is still true and is worth bearing in mind when we try and think about why we want to control our blood sugar. Okay. Yeah, I think it was coined and positioned in a way to help people understand that insulin resistance isn't an issue of glucose just not getting in the cells full, and it's not taking any more reservations, right? It's not going to let any more in. So another important point that might be worth clarifying is this concept of you hear it on social media and stuff. It's and people will say you get the low carb, high fat camp, 
and then you have the low fat high carb camp and they'll say we both fare well in terms of weight loss and and Mm -hmm. insulin sensitivity and resistance and is this this idea which i've just learned about actually in the last couple of years is this idea they call it a cycle but it's the randall cycle or the Mm -hmm. randall it's not really a cycle i guess but it's the randall phenomenon yeah and this is the idea well you can explain it but my understanding is that if you have too much fat and too much carb together the cell can only manage one or maybe it's trying to manage both at the same time and it can't so when they're eaten together that can be more problematic which might be at odds with our energy and our dna and our ancestral evolution etc so yeah so essentially the 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 randall cycle the randall phenomenon is a nice way to put it is is basically that at its most simple which is an oversimplification but gets the point across is that the metabolism of fat and carbohydrate are antagonistic to one another essentially and when you're metabolically unhealthy i think there is some potential benefit to the idea that if you just remove one of those substrates the the system might more easily recover however in somebody who is metabolically healthy eating a eucaloric diet, I don't think eating carbohydrate and fat together is a problem at all. And we have no real evidence to suggest that uh, that is a problem, again, in a high-quality eucaloric diet. So I don't think that people need to avoid eating carbohydrate and fat together. And the other reason, the big sort of elephant in the room of saying, yes, say a low-carb diet and we'll call it a low fat or maybe a a slightly more extreme version being like a whole foods plant-based diet, which is usually low in fat calories. One of the reasons why those work is because you just end up eating less because they're restrictive diets. They usually contain far less processed food. I mean, and sort of, I mean like not processed as in you cooked it. I mean, processed as in it came in like a cellophane wrapper from the store. And in that setting, both of those groups are just eating fewer calories. And that is a main driver. One reason why I have often preferred low-carb approaches, not that although I am not dogmatic about it at all, I'm very happy for anybody to eat on any part of the spectrum if we can if they can find something that's sustainable and, and feels good for them, is that if you eat a low-carb diet, you're more likely to eat more protein, which A is the thermogenic, so it contributes less total calories to the system and it increases satiety but it's also going to be protective or help support muscle mass and like we talked about i think muscle mass is incredibly important for metabolic health so i err on the low carb side of things but you can achieve this anywhere on the spectrum you could you could do it just by eating a mixed diet with plenty of fat and carbohydrate if you're very good and diligent at counting or or monitoring your caloric intake you can do it anywhere on the spectrum and as i basically remind people you could theoretically overeat food expression this like whole foods diet like you could overeat quinoa broccoli and salmon but it's pretty yeah, difficult it's and really that's odd. like nobody is getting overweight <laughs> or metabolically compromised because they're overeating that kind of food it's all the other stuff i don't mind using the word garbage i know people don't like that because it's <laughs> judgmental but it's all the other stuff on the market so that offers some perspective in that regard and so I guess as a clinician, what I find interesting is when, if you're dealing with somebody with prediabetes, are you working with anybody in this? So I I occasionally, I have clients, they're usually athletic 
type clients. Although I do work with some people with chronic disease, but it's very much a sort of like an ad hoc consult type position. I, I don't, I don't have a clinical practice. Okay. And the fit people or the athletes are not going to be probably dealing with these issues. So it's like, I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around it. So you have these people who are pre-diabetic or type two diabetic mm. and the majority of their sugar is coming from the liver because it's taking fat from the fat cells, glycerol, converting it into glucose via gluconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. And then that sugar is circulating through the bloodstream. People are walking around, I think, in SI units. So they might be walking around sometimes with 10 millimoles, which is too high. What happens with that glucose? I mean, does it just go through the cycle of going back to the liver and get packaged into triglycerides and that comes back? Or like, what, what happens with it and then what should we do with it? Yeah, so it does essentially keep circulating. It can end up in the liver and the liver will start to package some of it as triglycerides because that's another a safer storage spot is as, as fats if you can get it on a triglyceride than, than it is, you know, just to have it circulating as glucose. But essentially... You know, if you're trying to think of what you want to do with this like person clinically, you need to reduce systemic insulin resistance. So if you can, in the short term, you could increase the glucose sink, right? So movement is going to be your best option. And then alternatively, I mean, at the same time, hopefully, is you find any diet that's going to allow for either the spontaneous or forced reduction of caloric intake, such that you know, you can start to relieve some pressure on the fat tissue and you can start to then use up the, the excess energy in the system. Yeah, because you're going to force the body to use that as energy. So, you know, what I see in practice, and I know you must have a concept of this, is treating type 2 diabetes or even pre-diabetes as a glucose issue, mm -hmm. right? So you have people walking around with these high blood sugars and so we pump them full of endogenous insulin, giving them all these units. Hopefully not in pre-diabetics, but... Yeah. Oh, no, okay, yeah. So they're getting metformin, which is, again, to shut off the liver's production. But in type 2 diabetes, it's like, okay, their sugar's high before a meal, they're going to eat, so we have to give them insulin to push the sugar that's already high down and then to, mm -hmm. to take into account the carb they're going to eat at the meal. Yeah. And we give them that, and at that point, that's called super physiological because you can be giving 20, 30 units. Mm -hmm. It's taking that sugar and shoving it back into fat cells, I guess. So, no, what it's doing is it's... So there may be some aspect of that, depending on how high circulating... Um, I actually haven't seen studies on how high circulating insulin goes when you inject it, say, subcutaneously. or I should look at that. I don't know if you've seen that. But so the same thing is essentially going to happen. You're, you're going to have circulating insulin and you're going to give enough to shut down lipolysis and shut down proteolysis. So again, you're, you know, and, and maybe go to the liver and shut down gluconeogenesis. So again, like a big chunk of what's happening is the shutdown of an endogenous glucose production rather than the increase of up uptake of glucose into cells. And so whatever glucose is there, some of it's going to be taken up by the cells. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the, okay. those cells are continuously taking up glucose. Like we talked okay. about in, even in people who are insulin resistant, there's a lot, you know, it's essentially a substrate driven process. You have a huge amount of glucose and just basic diffusion is going to tell you that that glucose is going to go into those cells. So even in those who are insulin resistant, that glucose is going in. It's just particularly in those in that population, they're not often using it up. So that contributes to the, the process of insulin resistance. Yeah, it's just to me, it's kind of sad because we're focusing on glucose. We're 
giving people lots of insulin and then they're really happy because their fasting blood sugar comes down or their A1C comes down, but it's really at a cost that's unseen. And they do gain weight. You know, if, you, if you're sh- continuously shutting down lipolysis, which, which right. is great because it will reduce your glucose, the fat will still continue to accumulate. Like the, the uptake of, of fat into adipose tissue is, has pretty much a basal state and it continues, at least partly driven by circulating fat. So, that, so that they do gain a lot more fat because of that. And it's it's kind of cruel to do that and then tell them to lose weight with them trying to exercise or whatever because they're not going to be burning that fat because it's shut off yeah. with all that extra insulin. Mm. It's almost, I mean, you, you could do it if you calorically restrict enough, but it's going to be hard. So it's going to be hard. So in terms of assessing all this, do you... Do you like the HOMA IR as a way to measure this? Because I know like it, normally we just do fasting blood sugar and everything's within normal. We say it's great, but of course the insulin can be really high. And then there's the A1C, but you're obviously familiar with the HOMA IR. I just mm. had mine done for the first time. Do you see that where I'm in Canada, the government's not going to pay for it because they're just going to do fasting blood sugar because I'm sure it's yeah. like three cents a test. But do you like that as a concept? Because I'm trying to talk about it more with patients. Yeah, so so the HOMA IR is is and there's a couple of versions of it, but it's essentially a calculation based on fasting glucose and fasting insulin. So it's an idea of telling you how much insulin do you need to keep your glucose at the level that you have it. And again, that idea still holds because the insulin can be functioning to to reduce endogenous glucose production rather than glucose uptake. So so it still works as an idea, certainly. And and I think that a home IR is a nice place to start and almost everybody has access to that. You just have to get your, your doctor to order it if, if they're willing. And it's not, it's not expensive, certainly. Other things that people can consider that the HbA1c is useful as an internal metric to track over time. However, using HbA1c as like some formal cutoff to tell you something isn't particularly useful because the variability in blood sugar required to give a certain level of HbA1c is very high. So if I have an HbA1c of 5% and you have an HbA1c of 5%, our average blood sugars could still be one or two millimolars different. And because of all these other processes that regulate what might result in an HbA1c. So it's useful for me to track mine over time, but it's not useful for me to compare mine to yours, if that makes sense. The uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio, I think is useful in most populations, but the data is slightly skewed because most of the work has been done in white people. So it seems to hold best in that ethnic group in black people or Asian populations. The triglyceride to HDL ratio is not as useful for predicting insulin resistance, but it usually just means you have to have a more conservative cutoff in terms of what you might think might be associated with some insulin resistance. And then there are also some other indices like the Macaulay index based on triglycerides and glucose. And some of those are potentially useful as well because you'll always get a basic lipid panel and you'll always get a fasting glucose. So you, so you, have, you always have triglycerides and glucose even if you don't have insulin. So even from you know, a very basic blood test that any doctor is going to be doing on, on, on somebody sort of coming in to assess these things, I think you can get some idea. Okay. Yeah, you already mentioned exercise. Is there any, I just don't know if you know off the top of your head, is there any validity to some of this work that looks at various nutrients? Like To me, the standouts are kind of magnesium, chromium, vitamin D3, both in terms of glucose metabolism, but vitamin D may have some protective role against the beta cells. 
If you know, great. If not, I don't know. Yeah, so I would, I'm kind of in the camp that most people are probably magnesium deficient or insufficient, at least to, to some degree. Being in Canada, have you heard of Stephen Genuis? He's a toxicologist mm-hmm. in Canada. He has done a, lo- a load of interesting work looking at the, the excretion of various different toxicants or toxins. But he also wrote a nice review paper on magnesium and its effects on health a couple of years ago. And so I think you can certainly measure magnesium. I'd ideally you know, have it over two. I mean, that's probably high enough for, for most people. Oh, and that's a pr- fairly high target. Or I'm not even sure I'd measure it. I would just give people... Two or three hundred milligrams of magnesium in a bioavailable form, so it doesn't cause diarrhea. Vitamin D certainly, you know, contributes as well, and that is worth measuring if you're going to supplement, um, as I'm sure you know, because the amount that you need to get to a target level is very different from person to person. Also, very dependent on their body fat levels. The data on chromium is is more mixed. Uh, chromium picolinate has been sort of in and out of favor in terms of an insulin-sensitizing, glucose-regulating mineral. And I don't think the evidence is that great. If you were like somehow really chromium-deficient, maybe taking some will help things. But I'd say magnesium and vitamin D are certainly bigger ticket items that you could think about. Good. Well, that's been an awesome discussion. There's a lot to unpack. I know people are going to have to go back and kind of replay, replay, (laughs) because you covered everything in great detail. So we're basically out of time. I know you're busy um, and you got a lot to do. Where can people learn more about you? Any websites or social you'd like to share or promote? Sure. Most of my action happens on Instagram at uh, Dr. Tommy Wood. It will usually be science does pop up intermittently, but it will also be me lifting things or what I cooked for dinner last night. I think there's a recipe for, for a chicken breast crust for your pizza that I'm in my stories right now, which I had last night. So, and then people can DM me on there and that's probably where I'm going to be most responsive. But I do have a Twitter account at Dr. Ragnar. I mainly just lurk on Twitter to follow what's happening in science rather than really getting involved because life's too, too short. And then I do also have a website drragnar.com, where I have some old blog posts up there and people can contact me through the site. But if they really want to get hold of me, then Instagram is, is most likely where I'll, I'll get back to them. Yeah, you've got a lot of great links, these science articles and of course your dogs. <laughs> yes, I forgot the dogs. Yes, the <laughs> dogs. Make a, we have two boxers who, who probably appear more frequently on my account than anything else. Yeah, yeah, they always get more traction. So yeah, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> um, great. So again, thank you very much for your time. I know people are going to like it. I learned a lot. I'm going to have to kind of go back and rethink everything that I do and probably tell patients and clients. So this is worth its weight in gold. So thanks again for your time. Oh, very happy. Thanks for having me. Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, dougcookrd.com.